That's a clown question, bro. Hey, what's up on you? So I'm gonna kick some dirt. He gets on base. Just a bit outside. I'm not the type of player that's gonna be Johnny Hustle. If you don't want me to watch the ball, you can go get it out of the ocean. And welcome to the show to be named later, where we're talking baseball kind of whenever. Uh, I am your host, Chris Gianta. Over there on the other side of the screen is Daniel Curran. How you doing, Daniel? Pretty good, Chris. It's been another long week in quarantine, but it's also been a fine week of research. We've got a lot of Cincinnati Reds coverage coming at you today. We're talking about Joe Morgan, the big red machine. We're also talking about the Nasty Boys, the 1990 squad, the World Series champs. Chris, we got a good show today. Yeah, we are about to become a, one of the most beloved podcasts by Reds fans. That's just, right. Just based on this episode alone. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm very excited um, about you know both, both stories because – you know, Joe Morgan, I would say probably in history, kind of a little underrated. He's still, you know, he still gets his props, but a little underrated. Yeah. And the Nasty Boys, I didn't really know about them until uh, until you brought them up last week. Oh, yeah. so, you know, Absolutely crazy group of people. A lot of fun stories there, uh, off the field particularly, some on the field as well. Uh, a lot of fights, a lot of aggression, a lot of violence among those guys, but they were not to be reckoned with because they shut it down in the seventh, eighth, and ninth inning of that season. Yeah, yeah, and especially in the postseason. And, yeah, I mean, you, we, usually we talk about MLB news, but there's really no MLB there is, news. I mean, there's a – what? There's proposals to play in, in uh, Arizona. There's proposals to have the, uh, the leagues change up where they play in Florida and Arizona. It's just the Florida teams and the Arizona teams. We've kind of gone over that, and I, I don't know. I don't. I definitely wouldn't guarantee that it's happening. Uh, I wouldn't put it as likely either. I'd say it's most likely not happening, but it's fun to look at. But we've kind of taken these this quarantine to look back into the lore of baseball history. Uh, this team, we weren't even close to being alive for either of these people. Yeah, yeah, and it, you know, it's kind of a a, a lesson for us and you know maybe the viewers as well. Also, what I like about going through the the old school players is we can kind of modernize how good they were because, you know, back back in the day, Joe Morgan was probably overlooked because he had like a 271 career average, um, Mm. didn't get very many home runs, didn't get very many RBI, but he's definitely getting his props today because of the way he was able to get walks. Uh, the way he was able to steal bases. I so, bet nobody in 1975 knew that he had an 11 F4 that yeah. year. No, Especially him. no one. It did not exist yet. Definitely didn't exist. I mean, I, I suppose it existed. I mean, if we're keeping track, but I don't think anyone paid attention. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I feel like they just went back and, and did all the seasons. I'm not sure. Feel like Makes they, sense. Makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, we'll, we'll get right into it. Not yeah. a lot of MLB news going on. Uh, so yeah, Joe Morgan, Joe Morgan, he's a, he's a double entendre. Cause we talked about last week, if you are an American baseball player, you were born in Florida, Texas, or California. Mm-hmm. And he was born in Texas, raised in California. So he That's got right. two for three. Yeah. Two for three right there. And, uh, our player last. And he also played in the minor leagues in Durham. So there you go. Yeah. And our. Our, uh, our player last week also came from California, George Brett. If you mm-hmm. haven't heard that episode, check it out. 
it's on YouTube. Um, and uh, we're still not on Apple Podcasts yet as of the recording of this date. So they they got to get it together. I don't know. But uh, yeah, they have. They said they would get it in within two weeks, and it's been nine days. So they have five days to make do on their word, which you know I, I might believe in them. I might not. But anyway, George or not George, Joe Morgan. No, uh, not George Brett. <laughs> Joe Morgan, uh, born in Bonham, Texas, raised in Oakland, California. Uh, and, uh, you know, he has, you know, he, he kind of had an Oakland influence on him. Uh, mm. He actually, you know, when he started playing baseball, wore number eight because of Willie Stargell, who came out of Oakland and was, uh, and was you know, really prominent. That's right. Uh, growing up for, uh, for him. And a fun fact about Joe Morgan, he was kind of a, a product of, you know, you know, backyard baseball or whatever you may call it, because he didn't even play organized baseball until he was 13 years old, mm-hmm. which, uh, which is definitely something I found fascinating. The kind original of, Lorenzo Kane. Yeah. Yeah. Cur- yeah. Cause, uh, Kane he didn't, didn't play until like junior year of high school, wasn't there? Or was it Curtis Granderson or someone like that? Kane, I think it was sophomore year of high school. He did. Yeah. He hadn't played yet. I think Curtis Granderson might have a similar story too. Yeah. That's uh pretty, pretty wild stuff. Mm-hmm. but yeah Morgan had not did not play organized baseball till he was 13 which is you know middle school basically and then in high school uh, he also ran track and played basketball along with baseball but obviously baseball uh, was his, was his superior sport but the scouts didn't really come to see Joe Morgan particularly uh, he had a teammate Rudy May, who is a uh, left-handed pitcher, uh, went to the same high school as he did. And uh, he ended up, uh, you know, signing with uh, the Twins, I believe. But uh, Joe Morgan wasn't really getting any love in it. You know, you might think it's because he's, uh, he was five foot seven at the time and 140 pounds, you know, very undersized for a guy you're looking to you know, play professional, professional baseball. And he didn't even get a four-year baseball scholarship out of high school, even though, you know, he was probably very good. Obviously he was fast, um, but it, you know, people kind of put his, uh, his size against him and, uh, and, you know, they, they didn't really want him because they thought he didn't really have very much potential. And uh, obviously they were wrong. He ended up going to a two-year college, um, Oakland City College, uh, and he uh, he led the team in hits and stolen bases, um, as one may predict, as he's going to like a community college for baseball. And uh, eventually, you know, pretty pretty. Soon Shout out after, to uh, Steve Delabar. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> and uh, then eventually, you know, pretty soon after. Uh, having that year with Oakland City College, he was signed by, they were the Houston Colt 45s at the time. Uh, it was on November 1st, 1962, and he was 19 at the, at the time of the signing. And, and yeah, that's, that's how Joe Morgan, that's how Joe Morgan got uh, into, into the majors. I mean, I guess 
someone finally finally saw the talent there. And then uh, he makes his MLB he makes his MLB debut uh, less than a year uh, after being signed, uh, which was September twenty first, nineteen sixty three. He was twenty years and two days old. Um, fresh off his teen years. Yeah, fresh off his teen years. I'm getting close to that, which is uh, kind of sad to think. Gary, about. yeah, I turned twenty in a um, little over a month. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> May twenty seventh. That's where I'm going to be at Joe Morgan's uh, majorly debut, debut age. age. That's tough. <laughs> I'm definitely not going to make it to the majors by then, and not because of coronavirus. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, and, continuing uh, onward. Um, like Chris, do you want to say something? No, no, go go right ahead. So on September 22nd, 1963, the very following day, um, Joe Morgan came up to the plate for his second career plate appearance. Uh, it was a game against the Phillies, who were fighting for the NL pennants at that time. And uh, he came up with the winning run at second base. And he delivered an RBI single that won the game for the Reds. And uh, that was his first career hit. You know, this young kid, 20, 20 years old, only 5'7", uh, comes up and wins the game in his debut, essentially. And after the game, uh, Joe Morgan said in his Hall of Fame speech that Gene Mosh, the manager of the Phillies at the time, got so mad that he went to the clubhouse and said, you guys all just beat, got beat by a guy who looks like he's in Little League. <laughs> and Joe said, yeah, you know what? He was right. He said that in his Hall of, Hall of Fame speech. Yeah. And yeah, uh, yeah. another thing that he mentioned in his Hall of Fame speech was uh, another Hall of Famer, Nellie Fox, who played, who played two years with the Colt 45s in 1964 and 1965. And one thing I'd like to point out, um, Nellie Fox didn't do a whole lot on the field during those two years uh, with the Colt 45s. Uh, he had a 265, 317, 319, 636, you know, only, uh, not, even, not even one home run in 483 plate appearances. So there's not much to inspire uh, from his on the field performance with the Colt 45s. Uh, but one thing that you cannot take away from that is that he was a huge mentor to Joe Morgan during those two years. Uh, Joe mentioned him countless times in his Hall of Fame speech. He was the guy that really got him going. He was the guy that taught him more than any other teammate that he's had. And, you know, Chris, we always have these Hall of Famers that kind of go off to random teams at the end of their careers. You know, Nellie Fox was most famously with the White Sox for a long, long time. That's who he went to the Hall of Fame with. Uh, and there's not, there's not that, there's not nothing that comes out of those times with the random teams at the end of a career. Uh, Joe Morgan, a now Hall of Famer, a guy that we're talking about is one of the best second basemen of all time, wouldn't be where he is without a guy like Nellie Fox, who spent two years with him. Yeah, and Morgan also mentioned like he was kind of a, he kind of looked up to him even like in his high school years because Fox, you know, he wasn't five seven, but he was you know shorter guy for an MLB level guy who was, he was five foot 10 um, and only 160 pounds, according to, to baseball reference. So mm -hmm. like, I, I understand how like a short, a shorter middle infielder and, you know, Joe Morgan, he's not getting at, at the time of high school, he wasn't getting the attention from the scouts. So I, I really understand why he would be inspired from, from a guy like that. Yeah. So, yeah, so he, he, looked up, he looked up to him and uh, spent, got to spend some time with him, kind of a minimal amount of time, but was able to uh, 
spend some time with him on the Houston Colt 45s. Um, he goes back to the minors in 64, you know, nothing to, uh, nothing to scoff at. I mean, he's still 20 years old and, uh, legally able to drink. Yeah. Maybe it was different back then, but yeah, probably. But he spent most of 1964 in the minors and, uh, made well of his time in the minors. He won Texas league MVP. So yeah. And, uh, also, a phrase I, I learned from one of our uh, journal, journalism classes. A Texas leaguer. There's a Texas leaguer, and it's right. an actual Texas league. Yeah. It's, uh, a Texas leaguer, for those of you who don't know, is essentially like a bloop single uh, in baseball. And apparently, according to Marty Dobrow, a, pro- a professor of communications and journalism at Springfield College, uh, that is also known as a Texas leaguer. Yeah. So, and, uh, there's your little fun fact of the day. I don't think either of us knew about it before. I didn't know about it. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't know about that it. That man is dropping wisdom every day. Yeah, shout out, shout out to Marty. Yes. Great. Um, Springfield College in the background, as you can see on YouTube. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, in 64, wins Texas League MVP, and he plays uh, about 10 games. Ten, Yeah, he plays 10 games in the MLB. You know, obviously can't really do much there. But then in 65, he starts out with the major league team, uh, finished second in rookie of the year voting, uh, but he did lead the league in walks. Uh, He scored 100 runs and he stole 20 bases. So the guy was producing. Uh, His his final slash line was 271, 373, 418 for a 791 OPS. Uh, a 131 OPS plus because you also have to consider Morgan was kind of playing in an era where pitchers were a little more dominant. So, mm-hmm. you know, you kind of, sometimes you kind of have to look at the, um, the OPS plus or the weighted runs created plus because that's more comparative. Um, and it, it's the, the end OPS plus and weighted runs created plus are, are exactly 100 every single year. So it's all, it's all, you know, Chris, I'm looking right now at this this uh, 1965 NL Rookie of the Year voting, and uh, I'm try, I'm gonna have a hard time pronouncing this guy's name, Jim Lefevre. That's definitely wrong. From the Dodgers, won it. Uh, he had he had a 250, 337, 369, and 706 slash line. Joe Morgan was better on every single one of them. He also had he also was one win higher. Had more home runs, more hits, more less RBIs. It was it was sixty nine to thirty in RBI forty in RBIs that might be why, but also twenty to three in stolen bases in favor of Morgan ninety seven to seventy one uh, in favor of Morgan with walks, and uh, thirteen first place votes to four for the other guy. So I don't know. I think I might want that one back. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah. If that if that uh, selection or if that voting occurred today, I think Morgan gets that. No doubt. I think he gets through. Yeah, yeah. for sure and. Um, I'm, I'm not sure w- what, what position he was in, in the lineup at the time, but he was probably near the top because of his base running and ability to get on base. That might be why he had very few RBIs. Yeah, that's... Only 40 on the season. Yeah, that's, uh, that's my point. And he improves, he, he improves the next year as well, uh, doesn't get as many home runs. His slugging percentage was lower, but overall his average on-base percentage and his OPS were all higher, um, ended up with an 801 OPS. And uh, he was an all-star that year as well, went to his first Mm all-star game, 
that would be his first out of 10, uh, if, I, if I get that correctly. Yep, first out of 10 All-Star games. So something, something Joe Morgan can get used to. Uh, then the next year, nothing really, um, nothing really astounding. 789 OPS, 29 stolen bases. And then, uh, then in 68, unfortunately, uh, gets injured. He was turning the double play and, and uh, got his knee torn up and uh, was only able to play 10 games in, in 1968. Was it Chase Utley? Yeah, I think yeah, I think it was it was like Chase Utley's rookie year. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it was uh it was Astros Phillies cuz yep. Astros were still in the NL at the time. So they faced them a lot. Um then uh then Joe Morgan, you know, he kind of, you know, builds his identity over the years with the Astros. The Astros years, you know, they're they're not exactly, you know, the most memorable years for, for Morgan, but, you know, he did kind of build his identity through these years. You know, he, uh, he got over a hundred walks in 1969 and 1970. Um, he was also an all-star in 1970. Then he, he also started to steal bases at a higher rate. He stole over 40 bases in uh, 1969, 1970 and 1971. Um, and with the Astros as a as in his career, because he did get put on the trade block after 1971, he, he didn't free. It wasn't a free agent signing with the with the Reds. It was a it was a trade. The the uh, Astros traded him off. So in his in his career with the Astros uh, up until the trade, he had a 3.75 on base percentage, a 7.71 OPS. Uh, 36 stolen bases and a 4.9 baseball reference war. Mm. And, uh, of course, he gets traded in what turned out to be an eight-player deal to the Reds. And surprisingly enough, the at the Astros were the team that traded more players, even though they had Joe Morgan. Yeah, because uh, it's because the Reds were trading them Lee May, uh, who had hit 30 home runs three years in a row, leading leading up to that point. Probably one of the best transactions in Reds history, looking back on it. Yeah, I mean, I don't think the Astros really I, – I, I don't have Lee May's statistics pulled up, but Joe Morgan, as we'll get Can't into – Can't imagine they're any better than Joe Morgan's. Yeah, as, as we're about to tell you, Joe Morgan, when he, when he got to the Reds, was about to have a stretch for the ages. And it's, you know, it's basically – Especially second baseman. Yeah, it's it's not quite like what happened with Christian Yelich because he wasn't Joe Morgan wasn't winning MVPs uh, right away, but he did have some absolute historic seasons mm-hmm. when he, that still when stand he, out today, as you're about to hear. Um, yeah. So he later goes to the Reds. Uh, he everything ramps up after he joins the Reds. Uh, he resets career highs in slugging and OPS in '72. 73, 74, and 75. All every year he did it. Uh, his slugging percentage through the years from 72 to 75 were 435, 493, 494. He raised it by one point. 508, 576. And then for OPS, it was 851, 899, 921, 974, 1020. I actually, I actually got it wrong in the notes. It was 
He reset career highs in 72, 73, 74, 76. 75. Yeah, I, that was a typo. Yeah. Yeah. 75. I was going to say. 76. 76 was probably his best season. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, Joe Morgan, absolutely crazy 72, 76 run. In 1972, he finished fourth in the MVP voting. Uh, 73 also finished fourth. 74, he finished eighth. And then 75, he was the MVP. And 76, he was also the MVP. Um, You know, the 72 Reds, the 72 Reds, they ended up uh, winning the National League pennant also and uh, lost to the A's in seven games uh, in that. That's the first of three World Series in a row that the A's won too. Yeah, yeah. And uh, luckily, luckily the Reds, as a franchise, were able to kind of get the revenge, revenge on the uh, ath- athletics, as we'll get into later. Um, and yeah, it didn't, it didn't, uh, they didn't get back to the World Series until '75, which is which is when Joe Morgan, you know, that's when he he uh, started winning the MVPs. His average season, yeah, his. Uh, his average season between 72 and 76, we'll get back into the 72 to 76 runs because it's one of the best five-year stretches in baseball history. You have to, you have to understand that. And he did this as a second baseman too. We're going to refer to the fact that he was a second baseman a lot because second baseman in his timeline, were not supposed to do what he did. Yeah. You know, he, he, he had, you know, 268, career home runs that's a lot for a second baseman when yeah. you consider that he's he's also a five foot seven 160 pound guy <laughs> he's just he just definitely no steroids back then and yeah there's no steroids you know a guy like him's never gonna take steroids because of uh, some views he has that we'll get into later as well yeah yeah so between 72 and 76 his slash line was so his average season 303 431 499 for a 930 OPS. So yeah, 930 OPS, very respectable. But mm-hmm. when you also add in that he was getting 62 stolen bases in per year in that five-year stretch, that's absolutely insane. That I doesn't mean, happen. That doesn't happen today. No way. You don't see guys hitting or you don't see guys stealing 60 bases just overall. Yeah. Really, you don't see that a lot. And if you do, it's from like Billy Hamilton, who has like a 230 OBP. Yeah. And so, yeah, you're getting 62 stolen bases per year from a guy who's producing a 930 OPS. Mm-hmm. And then also, you know, that leads to his spectacular wins above replacement as well. Uh, his average uh, baseball reference war between 72 and 76 was 9.6. And his average fa- fan graphs war was 9.5. Very uh, rare that you see a uh, baseball reference and fan graphs just about adding up like that too. I think, I think historic, like when you go back in time, mm-hmm. I think uh, it agrees a lot more. Yeah. Like if you look at, if you look at the war leaderboards for baseball reference and like career war leaderboards on baseball reference and fan graphs, they're very similar. Like, yeah. like Joe Morgan in war amongst position players is 21st in both lists. Mm-hmm. 
So 72 to 76, I mentioned that this is a historic five-year stretch. And I went on fan graphs. I went through every five, like from 1871 to 1875, like that five-year stretch, all the way to 2015 to 2019. I spent a lot of time on this particular stat, so I guess I should hype it up. But from 72 to 76, Joe Morgan had a 47.3 fan graphs war. And only eight position players have had better five-year stretches all time. And those, those, five, or those eight players are no slouches either. Hannes Wagner, Babe Ruth, Rogers Hornsby, Lou Gehrig, Mickey Mantle, Willie Mays, Barry Bonds, and, of course, Mike Trout. Got, you know, just total guys. All of those that... guys, unbelievable hitters. Probably eight of the best hitters of all time. Yeah, uh, Joe Morgan right amongst them. Yeah, and Joe Morgan, I don't think he's talked. He's I don't think he's talked about as much as these guys. And he, you know, I think he he very well should be. And while we're main, on the top, while we're on the topic of like you know comparing Joe Morgan with the all-time greats like this, uh, I'm gonna pull up and I'm gonna not pull up. I'm gonna reference another thing that he said in his Hall of Fame speech. Uh, he referenced just going around the day before he was inducted during his speech and seeing guys like Ted Williams going around guys, you know, like, you know, all these hall of famers going around and he was like, what am I doing? What am I going to, what am I doing here? I'm not, I'm not one of these guys. And he said, uh, you know, even if like I'm entering the biggest league of there is today, it's, I'm going to have a hard time saying Mays, Musial and Morgan in the same sentence. And they all three of them deserve to be said in the same sentence. I think. Yeah. For for sure. I mean, I mean there's Mays on this list right here. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you said yeah, Mays, Musial, and Morgan. I mean, yeah, Morgan. I I think you know Mays. Mays played. Mays had that longevity. He was like, mm -hmm. he was getting like a, a 1,000 OPS like as a 40 year old, which is exactly which is crazy. And Stan Musial played, I believe, 23 years uh, in the league as well. Mm -hmm. he's like I think he's fourth or fifth all-time in hits but Morgan I mean we're gonna you know we'll we'll get we'll get into the all-time stuff but back to back to the 72 to 76 stretch that I'm gonna make sure everyone has this ingrained in their head in 1975 he had the highest on-base percentage in a season in 18 years it was since 1957 uh when Ted Williams had a had a higher on-base percentage and it was the only season, only season in the live ball era. So live ball era since 1920. Only season in the live ball era uh, with 67 plus stolen bases and a 950 plus OPS. Only season. Crazy, crazy stuff. Only season in 100 years. Only season in 100 years. Mm -hmm. And this isn't the only historical season as well. But also 1975, obviously the Reds, uh, they win the World Series that year. They uh, – they swept the they they swept the NLCS and then uh, they go to seven uh, with the Red Sox. In game three, he had a walk off single, uh, and then in game seven, uh, in game seven, it's tied three to three. Mm -hmm. I really hope there's not an ad. God, there's an ad. So yeah, in game seven. Uh, it's tied three to three. The Red Sox actually got out to a three nothing lead uh, in this game. I'm sure my D 
dad when he was he was uh, 12 years old at the time. Heartbreaking. By the way, all right, I'm going to have to screen share this. And uh, yeah, Joe Mo so it's tied three to three. Joe Morgan up to plate, top of the ninth. Uh, I think you got Pete Rose on base. Mm -hmm. And here it is. One of the most iconic batting stances. Texas Leaguer. I was about to say. And Ken Griffey Sr. scores on the play, too. There's P. Rose diving into third. So he takes the lead, and the Reds end up winning. I mean, you could all you could say that without Morgan, they might they might they might not uh, win that series. Yeah. So you know, Morgan Joe Morgan, you know, we're we're definitely hyping him him up here as he as he deserves to be hyped up. But you know, he didn't have the uh, greatest of postseason resumes. He didn't suck, but he was. It, it's not you know the greatest thing on his resume like. Uh, like his George 19 Bell. his 1976 NLCS, which we'll get into in a little bit, is one of the most absurd lines I've ever seen. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. This one, it's like um, it's like what the Red Sox did with Alex Bregman in uh 2018. Yeah. Yep. Um, but yeah, Joe Morgan seals that victory um, in 1975. Then in 1976, uh, he has an even better season in, in I would say my eyes, even though uh. His war was actually over a point lower, which I think might have been because of defense. defense, but I don't know how they evaluated defense. But probably a better – he's definitely a better season offensively because in yeah. 1976, uh, 1976, he slashed 320, 444, 576 for a 1020 OPS. Uh, that to go along with 27 home runs, 111 RBIs, and 60 stolen bases. Again, 60 stolen bases. Insane. With a 1020. With a 1020 OPS. And you know why that's so absurd? Uh, in the back to the live ball era. It's the only season in the live ball era uh, with a 1020 plus OPS and 60 stolen bases. The only season in a hundred years. Again, crazy. Absolutely crazy. The absolute defying moment of what a five to a player is. Yeah, that's that's all about it. And uh, I, I believe he won a gold glove that year. So, yeah, mm -hmm. for sure. And uh, also in that year. He sure no did one, win a gold glove that year. Yeah. No one in the MLB um, was within 100 points of his OPS. Uh, I, I think the, the next best OPS in the MLB was 9-12. And he, had a OPS he was on a different with, planet that year. Along with the gold glove defense and the 60 stolen bases. This is the stuff that you have to realize. Joe Morgan, no, no one was even close to being on Joe Morgan's level in 1975 or 1976. It's insane. Absolutely insane. And uh, then that leads us to the playoffs. The Reds want to repeat. And uh, in the NLCS... Uh, no one wanted to pitch to him, obviously. Obviously, I wouldn't want to pitch to him. Obviously, you don't want to pitch to him. So he ends up with 
a 0-0-0 average, but a 462 on base percentage. How? Six walks and 13 plate appearances. Insanity. It's over seven, but he still gets on base half the time. Yeah. That's why you got to look at the on base percentage because that average doesn't say at all. Guys like Joe Morgan can get on base without making contact. And that was Mm -hmm. exemplified perfectly in the NLCS. But then in the World Series, you know, I think the the Yankees, uh, who were the World Series opponents at the time, uh, they were they were a little more lenient and they let him hit the ball a little more. They didn't know um, it was coming. Which was a bad idea. Very bad idea. Uh, ends up slashing 333, 412, 733 for an 1145 OPS. He hit a home run uh, in his first at-bat of the series. Uh, I believe that only ended up being his, his only home run, but still an 1145 OPS in the World Series um, en route to a World Series sweep of the New York Yankees. Back-to-back World Series for Joe Morgan and the Big Red Machine. Yeah, crazy, uh, crazy team, crazy player. You know, you you think of guys, you know, I feel like if you look back, um, some guys might mention like Pete Rose and Johnny Bench bench before. Or even Tony Perez. Yeah, or even Tony Perez, but, but Joe Morgan was that guy. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, he had the. I mean, he had the best. He was the best player both of those seasons. Yeah, and then um, so that was you know th- those were both his MVPs. Um, he was he was an All Star every year between 1972 and 1979, which were coincidentally all his years with the Reds. Um, and he ended up winning a Gold Glove every year between 1973 and 1977, which is five gold gloves in a row. Uh, pretty, pretty astounding. Uh, 1977, he falls off, but he's still extremely good. Uh, an 895 OPS with 49 stolen bases, uh, 22 home runs to, to go on top of that. Very, very good stuff. Then he kind of falls off uh, in 78, has a 733 OPS. And uh, in his final year with the Reds, uh, 756 OPS, 28 stolen bases, you know, still very much above replacement, but yes. it's it's hard to get back to the level <laughs> where he was at. You know, he was 35 at the time as well. So that's, that's Joe. That's basically Joe Morgan in Cincinnati, the big, the big red machine kind of, you know, according, according to these websites I've looked at, it's it kind of started the big red machine kind of started to fall apart when the reds traded uh tony perez mm-hmm. and they uh they went to the nlcs in 1979 were, were unable to uh to win that and get to the world series so and uh also the we are family pirates yep the the pirates who ended up winning the world series that year that's right so the Reds do do not end up re-signing him. He's he's off to free agency, and where does he go? Goes goes right back to the first club that uh that that signed him, the Houston Astros. That's right. So, so goes, uh, uh, yeah, go ahead. He goes back to the Astros. Uh, he only played one that year there in 1980. Uh, still had a very respectable year: 243, 367, 373 for a 740 OPS. Not exactly the best 
offensive year with the bat he had, but he was still getting his walks in. In fact, he led the league in walks that year with 93. He had 93 walks in a year where he was far past his prime. Uh, so obviously he was still doing something right uh, with invoking fear in a pitcher, even at age 36. Yeah, still, you know, and I don't even know if it was fear. I, I think, you know, you go back to 65, he led the league in walks there and that was his rookie year. I think he just had incredible plate discipline and, and knew exactly yeah. what to swing at as well. Really good vision. Um, so, yeah, so he has, he has one year with, with the Astros. They actually end up going to the playoffs that year. I think that, that was their first time in, in franchise history going to the playoffs. Yeah, they have been. And, they uh, lost to the Phillies that year, I believe. Yeah, lost to the Phillies. And then uh, in 1981, he goes to the Bay Area where he grew up. Not the Athletics, but he goes to the Giants. Um, goes to the Giants. And uh, 1981 – uh, wasn't his best. Wasn't his best year. Only played 90 games out of probably at, for the Giants because it was a it was a strike year. They probably ended up playing like 110 games, so we probably yeah. played about 80 percent of the games. Um, 240 average, 371 on base, 377 slugging, uh, 748 OPS, 14 stolen bases. But uh, in '82, that's that's when he was kind of back to you know. He there brought was a, it back on for that season. Yeah, there was a there was a glimmer of the old Joe Morgan. Uh, it was his age thirty eight season. He ended up getting a silver slugger, which ironically enough was his first silver slugger because they they didn't introduce mm. the award till nineteen eighty. So yeah, yeah, he he wins his first silver slugger. Um, you know, obvious for for very obvious reasons. He uh, had a four hundred on base percentage and eight thirty eight OPS. And then uh, outside of the hitting net, he had 24 stolen bases as well. Um, and, uh, yeah, 14 home runs. Finished 16th in the MVP voting that year uh, to go with that. And then uh, then after that, Giants don't end up re-signing him. He ends up going to Philly, um, probably probably trying to, to win another World Series because that was, that was when the Phillies were, were very good. Um, mm-hmm. They they end up going to the World Series actually, and you know Morgan another very respectable year, 370 on base percentage and a 773 OPS uh, to go along with 16 home runs. Uh, the Phillies go go to the World Series, and uh, they lose in in five games. But Joe Morgan, that's not Joe Morgan's fault at all, uh, because he actually hit two home runs uh, in that series. And had a 1018 OPS with a 684 slugging. Yeah, he he did very well in that in that series. Mm-hmm. And then uh, he he finishes his career probably ideally. He he finishes his career in his hometown of Oakland. Goes to the Athletics. It couldn't be more fitting. Yeah, like that's that's the perfect way to retire. He's it's his age 40 season. Goes to Oakland. Uh, still a, a kind of a, a producer his his ops plus was above 100 so he was an above average hitter mm-hmm. uh, 707 ops um <laughs> a, 36, a 356 on base to go along with a 244 average 66 walks that year uh i mean this he was still getting his walks in at age 40 yeah so uh so yeah joe joe morgan that's basically his career it's it's 
his playing it's mostly, career. It's mostly Red's highlights, but, you know, a very good resume surrounding that. And kind of a journeyman to the end of his career, too. Yeah, and I, I think, you know, I, I don't know if they have footage of that, of, like, his last game, like, being in Oakland, but it, that's, like, a perfect swan song. Yeah. For sure. So, yeah, Joe Morgan, he's uh, – <clears throat> he is – you know, looked at as an all-time great, of course. Um, he is 20, as I mentioned before, uh, all-time, 21st among position players in wins above replacement all-time, both on baseball reference and on fan graphs. Uh, he's fourth among second basemen, and uh, he is second among second basemen since the live ball era. The only, uh, the only guy beating him out is Rogers Hornsby, who um, – who played between 1915 and 1937. So like he was the best second baseman in a while and no one's, no one's touched him since being, uh, being that great of a second baseman and uh, you know, all time 11th all time in stolen bases, fifth all time in walks uh, had almost 2000 walks, uh, which is a feat that not many get to get to get to get to. And uh, you know some some uh, stat nugs. He is one of six players in MLB history with 2,500 plus hits and 1,500 plus walks. Uh, the other five players are Carly Ostremski, Ricky Henderson, Ted Williams, Barry Bonds, and Babe Ruth. Pretty good company, if you ask me. Um, and he's the only player. He's the only player in the history of baseball with less than 295 home runs. Uh, to get more than 1,700 walks. And he's the only player uh, in the live ball era to get 550-plus stolen bases with an OPS plus of 130 or above. That, that is, uh, that's what I got from Joe Morgan. What did you get from Joe Morgan, Daniel? I got a few other statistics, and I really tried to go back as far as I could with this. Since 1930... He leads all second basemen in F4 and is tied for first in weighted runs created plus. Uh, he had 98.8 F4 in his career, almost at the 100 mark. He had 135 weighted runs created plus. The guy he's tied with, and this is among second basemen, of course, the guy he's tied with, Jackie Robinson, the guy who's celebrating his grand day tomorrow. That's going to be very exciting. Uh, 135 for both of them. Also, from 1970 to 2000, his 1975 season is the only one that accumulated 11 F4. Throughout all the league. Hell yeah. Not, to, not just talking second baseman. I'm talking outfielders. I'm talking first baseman. Everything. He was the only one to do it. Uh, my last thing. Between 1965 and 2000, he has five of the six best F4 seasons by a second baseman. Uh, the only one is Craig Biggio was fourth. And he Joe Morgan had one, two, three, five, and six. Yeah. Yeah. He, yeah. Also, yeah. Owned the top three by a, by a long shot. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He was uh... – He's definitely, definitely something else, boy, mm -hmm. definitely something else, you know, just by traditional standards, 10-time All-Star, five-time Gold Glove winner, two-time. He was ahead of his time. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Like, like there's probably a lot of, um, a lot of parallels you could draw. The only, like, like when I was thinking of like a modern day comparison, the closest thing I thought was maybe Max Muncy. You know, he plays second base. He's a power hitter. Uh, but even then, like he can't, he can't run like Joe Morgan. 
he can't hit for contact like Joe Morgan. And I don't know if he's going to have the longevity that Joe Morgan had. Yeah, I feel like I feel like you have to go to maybe shortstop. I don't I don't even yeah. know. Like, I Joe think Joe Morgan is a one of a kind second baseman. Maybe maybe in the future, like Fernando Tatis Jr. could get into that yeah. conversation. Maybe. But obviously that's a maybe. He's just in his second year now. And mm-hmm. that's like when you're comparing him to a guy that has a hundred career baseball reference war, you know, that's that's a tough comparison for, for a guy who's uh, in his second year in the MLB, but obviously mm-hmm. he's very good. Yes. So yeah, Joe Morgan, his, uh, his post career, um, you know, he gets into broadcasting very quickly. If you, yeah, if you haven't, if you haven't heard Joe Morgan, by the way, very good voice Yeah. You know, for a guy who wasn't a professional broadcaster to start. Very I watched his hall of fame speech, like I mentioned, and it was honestly really soothing to listen to. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Definitely. Uh, some something to uh something i learned from the video game mlb 2k8 of course baseball video game um so he uh he started calling games in in 1985 uh september of 1985 and he he went with a lot of different teams uh he called games for the reds called game for the call games for the giants as well as the oakland athletics uh and he also went national uh, to go with that, ABC Sports, NBC Sports, ESPN, and most importantly, mm-hmm. like I mentioned, the MLB 2K series, uh, something... Uh, Holds a special place in our hearts. Something little seven-year-old Christopher Giotto will, will always remember. And uh, now now Joe Morgan, still kicking, uh, hosts a radio show on Sports USA. I don't really know exactly where that is. Um. And he's uh he's also an advisor for the Reds, which very uh very explicable. And, and Joe uh, Dan, is also Joe, Joe has also kept himself in the news. Uh, this coming a few years ago, he wrote a letter to the Hall of Fame voters, uh, begging them to keep steroid users out of the Hall of Fame. And you know, Chris, we've had the steroids in in the Hall of Fame conversation plenty of times. I know that we respectfully disagree with Joe on his opinion here, but if anyone's gonna have a valid case of talking against the steroid guys in baseball going to the Hall of Fame, it's him. Yeah. If I mean, he's walking proof that you don't have to be jacked and this enormous, you know, person to be a great baseball player with us, with power hitting, with defense, with, with vision, with anything. Uh, you can do it without steroids. And that's what Joe Morgan did. Yeah. When you're, when you're five, seven, 160 pounds and you hit, you had a 1,020 OPS, with sixty-seven uh, stolen bases or sixty stolen bases, stolen bases, you can you can talk all that all that you can, uh, you can say all you want. You have yeah. you have earned the right, my friend. Yeah, yeah. I mean, for sure, big time. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna step on anything Joe Morgan no. has to say. And also, uh, you know, very very well earned um, leads us into our next topic, uh, which will be following uh, this little break that we'll be taking. The listeners won't be taking a break at all. He was inducted into the Hall of Fame in August wearing the Reds cap. Mm-hmm. His plaque wearing the Reds cap. Um, he was inducted into the Hall of Fame first ballot in 1990, which Getting is... Getting 81% of the vote. In 81.8% of the vote in mm-hmm. 1990, which is where our show will leave off. 
And Meyer goes to facing again. He always comes straight off the mound, goes to the third base side and comes right back on top. And now they're standing here at the front. Oliver sends out the side. the game and it's not a dream. From fifth to first, the pennant we have won. Now I present the, the champion. And that is your 1990 Reds. Red Hot. Coming Red Hot. The, the Nasty Boys. The 1990 Cincinnati Reds. I mean, everyone talks about when you talk about World Series, you know, championship teams with the Reds. Talk about the big red machine, 75, 76. Mm-hmm. But 1990 was something special, for sure. This was, this was a crazy bunch of people. And I literally mean crazy. Like, these people would fight the – this This is a team full of Amir Garretts, Chris. Yeah, yeah. And this, I like, this team was the, the original Amir Garrett. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, definitely some, some influence there. Yeah, they, they would be proud to see what he did last year against Pittsburgh. Yeah, so, you know, this is the second half of our uh, Reds tribute episode, mm-hmm. talking 1990 Cincinnati Reds. Um Definitely, uh, let's just get right into it. A team, the Reds, you know, they they hadn't made the playoffs in 11 years up to this point. Usually, you know, teams will, like, get into the playoffs, lose maybe once or twice, then win the World Series. This was was a team that won the World Series after not appearing in a playoff game since 1979. Yeah. Um, And they were a worst-to-first story as well. Uh, they finished. Well, not quite. Yeah, there were six teams in that division. Oh, boy. All right. Well, Close. they were – And they were like two games out of last, though. Okay, yeah. They Nonetheless, they they, they sucked pretty bad. They were uh, 75 and 87 uh, in 1989. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they uh, they went on to hire Lou Pinella, um, 
in uh, in the winter leading up to to 1990, and uh, I guess that I guess that kind of helped them out. I mean, if you guys know if you know who Lou Pinella is as a person, he's the perfect uh, type of guy to lead a team like this. You know, he's crazy. They're crazy. If you want to if you want to look up crazy, just see any Lou Pinella freak out uh, after getting ejected. Uh, he throws a fit like nobody else. He'll toss his hat around. He'll argue right in the ump's face. He will do whatever it takes to make his point. And nobody else was better at that than him in the history of baseball. Maybe Billy Martin, but that's about it. Uh, so this team, they got to a red-hot start, just like that video told you. Uh, they played in Houston to start the season, only the second time in franchise history that they were on the road to start the season. So quite unusual. Uh, but they didn't take offense to that at all. In fact, maybe they did, and they took it out on their on their opponents on the field. 9-0 and to start the season, Chris. They won their first nine games. And in those nine games, they got some production from, of course, future Hall of Famer Barry Larkin, probably the best player on their team at that point, a 564 average to go along with a 600 OBP, a 667 slugging, adding up to a 12 67 OPS. Chris Sabo, their third baseman, crazy glasses guy, 350, 458, 725, 1183. Jack Armstrong, a guy who won the starting job out of spring training, 3 0 with an 095 ERA in the first nine games of the season. Are you kidding me? This guy was lucky enough to be on the team and he's contributing like nobody else. Yeah, this team, yeah. They just, I don't know. You rarely see a team that you know, was basically cellar dwellers the year before, just kind of come out of nowhere and start 9-0. and Usually they kind of sneak up on you, mm-hmm. but not not this team. That's right. So this team uh, basically cruised through the first half of the season. I mean, they just tore through the whole league. 15-29 and at the All-Star break. That was the best in the NL. They also brought five All-Stars to Wrigley Field for the All-Star game. Chris Sabo, Barry Larkin, Jack Armstrong, Rob Dibble, and Randy Myers. Of course, Rob Dibble and Randy Myers, two of the three members of the Nasty Boys. Uh, The third one, Norm Charlton, didn't quite make it that year, but he had an all-star moment of his own. On June 24th, the Reds played their first Sunday night game in the history of their franchise against the Dodgers. Mind you, Sunday night baseball started in 1990, so it's not like they were sort of uh, neglected for a bunch of years, but they got on the first year. The Reds won that game 10-6. Uh, but that's not important. The important part is Norm Charlton pitched three innings, recorded a save, and also had a three, also had a plate appearance in that game where he got hit by a curveball from Fernando Valenzuela. He got hit on the leg by a curveball. Obviously, it's not intentional if you're going to hit someone with a curveball. But uh, the night before, Chris, um, there was a play at the plate where Dodgers catcher Mike Sosha sort of nicked Eric Davis, the right fielder from the Reds, a little bit, a little bit too hard and celebrated a little bit on the out. So Norm was pretty mad, A, at getting yeah, hit, and, and B, from that play the other night. So when he gets hit, he slams his bat into the ground. I mean, he got hit with a curveball. Like, you're going to feel that for, what, like four or five seconds? Like, that's not going to hurt. So later in the inning, Joe Oliver, the catcher, hits a double into the left center field, left field corner, I'm sorry, and Norm gets the stop sign at third and is going to be out by 15 feet if he goes home. But he goes home anyway, wearing the pitcher's jacket. This is the, one of the most unathletic running things I've ever seen. He then proceeds to truck Mike Sosha at the plate. I mean, he absolutely destroys him. And uh, he gets up. like uh, He drops the ball, first of all. He high-fives his teammate, uh, Todd Benzinger. 
And Chris, you're going to pull up the video right now because this yeah. is something you need to see if you haven't already. Also, one thing I'd like to point out as well from uh, a YouTube video I saw was Charlton was upset. I think Sosha kind of deked Davis a little bit. He kind of faked that there was a throw coming, which maybe it was it, it was probably the uh, – Chris, I think we saw the same video. The hard It was probably the hard hit on Davis yeah. more because deking a guy, I don't think that's really – unsportsmanlike it's just be smarter but yeah this is this is something to watch right here well this was not a real wise play by charlton the third base coach is holding him up but he's going all the way social trying boom but charlton is coming after him he did not go after the play He did not go after the plate. I think Charlton just wanted a piece of him. Yeah, he did. He almost slapped Benzinger in the face. After he got hit, he wanted a piece of anybody. And who else to call that moment than 1990 Hall of Fame inductee Joe Morgan? I Classic. Mean, I mean, the roads cross every time we do one of these shows, Chris, and it did for a second time just there. Yeah, because uh, la uh, last week, um, George Brett was interviewed at, at the 2012 uh, Home Run Derby that Prince Fielder won. While we, he was hitting. As we were doing George Brett and the 2012 Tigers today, Joe Morgan and the 1990 Reds. Mm -hmm. Didn't play in the same era, but crossover uh in in this particular episode but, um uh, yeah here we go so one of my favorite one of my favorite parts about that uh, that moment is mlb network made a documentary uh talking about the 1990 reds particularly the nasty boys side of it and they asked norm about that play and he goes quote was it necessary absolutely not was it a smart move absolutely not would i do it again absolutely yeah. Didn't even didn't even hesitate on the absolutely. He knew he wanted a piece of of Mike Sosha regardless of how it looked on him in that moment. Yeah, let's go. And these guys, these three guys, Rob Dibble, Randy Myers, and Norm Charlton, as you see in the background of me, uh, they were basically the best three-headed monster of a bullpen you could possibly imagine. All three of them were more more competitive than probably anyone else you could ever find. They were all super intimidating. They all threw hard. They were all great pitchers too. And they all were just not afraid of anything. And that's sort of some competitive nature that is kind of lost in today's game, unless you're Amir Garrett, I guess, and you're willing to fight an entire city. But yeah. having these three guys in one bullpen uh, would probably scare someone, especially thinking if it's seven, eight, nine, and you're in the lineup, you're guaranteed to face one of them if they're pitching three innings. Yeah, for sure. Facing nine batters, and there's nine batters in the lineup. Or even back then, probably, probably more than three innings. I mean, yeah. there were a I mean, lot Norm of. Charlton made some starts this season. Yeah, you know, back he in the day, sixteen games. Yeah, back in the day, there were a lot more. You know, four, five, six out saves. So, mm -hmm. you know, these guys could have been coming in in like the sixth inning as well. Yeah. So. Uh, they get out of the all-star break and don't exactly have the second half that lived up to the hype of their first half. In fact, they were under 500. They had a 41 and 42 record in the second half, 
this cold stretch was highlighted by an eight-game losing streak in between July 24th and July 30th. They also lost in a doubleheader during that streak, both ends. Uh, Billy Hatcher's OPS went from 752 to 730. Barry Larkins went from 805 to 793. Chris Sabo's went from 875 to 846. And Eric Davis's 834 to 801. So the, the, pre, pre, uh, the premier part of their offense was really lacking during that time. And that sort of led to uh, the losing streak. Also pitching was just not doing well. The Nasty Boys were even uh, giving up a few home runs of their own. Um, and after the eighth loss, uh, you know, when a team, when a great team gets in a losing streak, the way you get out of it and the way your team responds is sort of the statement on how good your team truly is. So what do the Reds do when they lose the eighth game in a row? Well, uh, Ron Oyster has Eric Davis shave his head. And the team rallied around that and kept winning after that. Yeah, that reminds me. 2014 uh, Red Sox, they had a bad losing streak. And uh, Andrew Miller, who's known for his long hair and beard, cut his hair and shaved his beard, which Mm -hmm. kind of which kind of uh, was a prequel to his Yankees career. Not that the 2014 Red Sox had the same result as this team. Yeah, they, they definitely didn't recover. I don't think Andrew Miller really, really. No, but the Reds, because of their, because of how good they were in the first half, they were basically set to dog the second half and still do great. They yeah. finished the season with a 91 and 71 record. They clinched the NL West. They were in the NL West back then on September 29th. And they went into the postseason as huge underdogs against both of the teams that they would go on to face. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, because the Pirates, the Pirates had a... They had Barry Bonds and Bobby Bonilla, who finished top two in the MVP voting that season. Yeah, I believe um, their their offense, I, I didn't put it in the notes, but I think their their uh, team OPS might have led the league that year, and uh, their oh, yeah. pitching was nothing to scoff at either. Doug Drayback? They had, they had four more wins than the Reds, and I would assume they probably came in with a lot more momentum than the Reds did. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. And uh I mean one one bright spot for the uh for the Reds in that second half, or I guess just September, Jose Rihu. Rihu? Rio. Uh he uh he had a spectacular September. One for the ages. Seven starts, fifty-seven innings, one point two six ERA, uh three complete games four starts of nine plus innings because uh one of one of those games went to uh, extra innings and he, he that should still be a complete game by the way like you pitched nine innings that's a complete game yeah i mean i know it's technically not but i think you you, you might you should get that credit and uh he had a 480 ops against and uh his best his best game in that september was a uh, september 17th against the giants who were still kicking in the in the nl west division Mm-hmm. Uh, through a complete game, two hit, twelve strikeout shutout uh, in that game, and, and it was kind of a uh, an eluder to his October success, which is what we're going to get into. So I've talked a lot about this team's on the field stuff, and there's plenty of off the field stuff to go over too. And I'm going to go over a little bit of that, just some little things that happened in the game uh, during one game against the Padres. Padres uh, manager Jack McKeon complained that Rob Dibble's jersey. Uh, which was designed to give pitchers like a more shoulder room. It was tailored that way. He argued that it was a distraction. So Dibble actually had to pitch two and two thirds innings wearing pitching coach, Stan Williams, uh, number 35 Jersey. That's coming from Cincinnati.com. 
Also, Billy Bates, a uh, quick outfielder, raced a cheetah before a game. Of course, he was given a five-second head start where he was in center field, and they released the cheetah that was trained to, like, run as fast as it can. Obviously, it's a cheetah. It's the fastest animal ever. It was trained to run as fast as it can at something that was, you know, ahead of it, that being Billy Bates, and he won by two seconds. So he could have had a three-second head start and still beaten them. And that was uh, – that's something you're probably not going to see in modern baseball. And, of course, the, the crown jewel of this team, the Nasty Boys, uh, these highlights I have weren't from 1990, but they say all you need to know about them. Chris, why don't you pull those up? Uh, yeah. Anchored by Rio, and you had Danny Jackson and Tom Browning. If we could get a lead into the sixth inning, we felt the game was over. Got it usually was, thanks in large part to a lockdown bullpen featuring three guys whose stuff and demeanor was summed up by their nickname. When you refer to the Reds' bullpen in 1990, you don't hear Rob Dibble, you don't hear Randy Myers, you don't hear Norm Sharon, you hear the Nasty Boys. Together, this group of relievers became the face of a Reds team that could beat you or bully you, and on many nights, was happy to do both. Three guys that could each throw harder than the other one, and they didn't mind throwing inside, and really didn't even mind sticking it in your ribs. And if they happened to hit you, and you wanted to take issue with it, they would all walk halfway to the place so you didn't have to go all the way out there. There's that big Rob Dibble. You wouldn't want him in there either. So at the end of that video, you see Rob Dibble go and uh, hit a guy on the Mets and start walking towards the mound. And I'm sure you're wondering what exactly came of that. Well, that's answered in the next video that we have. Uh, uh, yeah, Rob Dibble was kind of the main nasty boy for sure. Yeah. He was... Uh, and he, he had a fantastic... He had a 1-5 FIP that season. Yeah, I was going to – That doesn't happen. In 98 innings, pitch as a reliever, too. Yeah, and to have a 1-5 FIP, that's crazy. Absolutely crazy. You don't really see that. Well, Rob Dibble was certainly the most combative. Uh-oh. Here goes Yowling. Here's Dibble. And the war is There's so many guys I disliked. I still dislike them. Dibs would do some wild and crazy things, but that was part of the, the mystique that uh, made hitters uncomfortable when he was on the mountain. Well, I was with the Mets in 89 with the buddy Daryl Tuck. Oh! Daryl Tuck has right in the back, right in the numbers, with a pitch about as hard as Rob could throw it, and it simply took Tuffle's breath away. There's no doubt that that's an intentional he got up, dusted himself off, and he got some good shots in him. Doesn't unbelievably fight you. After Dibs hit Tuffle, we cleared the benches three times for another pitch was coming. We're holding Norm once, and well, spiked him in the hand, spiked him in the chest, and so Norm came in all bloody. I went in the locker room and called their locker room. He said, tell Samuel to get out. He was thrown out of the game. I was thrown out of the game. Tell him to get out of here. I want to see him in the tunnel. Strawberry, on the other end, said, no, I'll, I'll effing beat you halfway. Now, half our team runs out 
underneath the shade and they're going to the locker room and they all met in the tunnel and you know obviously i was out there we're all now the cops had to kind of break it up i've never seen so many new york city police officers in my life they figured out what was happening real quick and uh, we never got close enough to each other for anything to happen but uh, that was a big brawl tim tuffle was hardly the last person rob dibble would hit in his career but one incident stands out from the rest one game after he had a save he literally stepped off the mound and threw the ball all the way into the center field stands from the mound. I'll never forget. I mean, I gave up a single, walked the guy, I gave him another single. I ended up uh, getting Ryan Sandberg, and Hal Morris flipped me the ball. And when I turned around and threw it, and the ball just traveled like 400 feet. I mean, he lost his temper. Great toss, great toss. <laughs> Over the center field wall, up into the green seats, which was the second deck. I mean, that's a tremendous throw. When he threw it into the center field stands, it hit somebody. It just came out of nowhere, and I was packing my stuff up, and the next thing I know, I got hit by this ball, and it bounced off of me and landed in my husband's Coke cup. And I couldn't, I just couldn't even breathe. It hurt so bad. I felt really bad that that happened. I went and talked to the teacher. I taught first grade at the time, and uh, Mr. Dibble was very generous, and he took a photo of himself on Pitcher's Mound. He went and actually posted a photo and autographed every single one of them and gave them to each one of my students. So, and the dads thought that was really cool. So, yeah. That is, that is a, I mean... You know, when you hear when you hear about these baseball fights happening and you hear of like people, you know, losing their tempers on a field, you know, they'll always talk about how like, you know, when they step in between the lines, they're a different person. Like, you know, they're a completely normal, laid back type of guy off the field. But you step between those white lines and they want to kill someone like Joe Kelly is, is an example of that. These guys weren't like that. These guys wanted to fight regardless. Like the fact that they still wanted to go in the tub tunnel and fight Daryl Strawberry uh, after the after the fight. Like is crazy to me. Like they still they still have a personal feeling about it off the field. Yeah, the cop the cops being involved too. Yeah. It's and yeah, it's that's some wild, wild stuff. But they another another Rob Dibble story I have is uh in two thousand one, he made a bet with Lou Pinella uh that Ichiro in his first year uh coming from Japan, obviously Lou Pinella was managing the Mariners at that that time, of course. Um he said if Ichiro wins a batting title in his first season, he will get a butt tattoo with Ichiro's name and run naked through through Times Square. Uh, Ichiro pre proceeded to hit 350, win a batting title, and he did it. He, he did those things. And yeah. it's crazy to me that he was that skeptical about Ichiro. Like, that's such a, that seems like such a random thing to, like, put that on the line for. But he did it, and he was a man of his word. I would I would guess it was a thing where he was coming over from Japan and he thought he wasn't for real. Yeah. Cuz that was, uh, he was Yeah, that was one of the uh, it might have been the first position player to come from Japan. I'm not sure. It, I mean, it was the first big name one. Yeah, first Yeah, cuz I mean, most of the people were pitchers at that time, right? That were yeah, coming over. Like, uh, Hideo Nomo and uh, yep. I think a couple other guys as well. Yeah. But back to so the then, 1990 Reds. Mm -hmm. so yeah that's that's all we uh got for the for the nasty boys highlights just yeah. from their personalities yeah for their personalities so that leads them to the playoffs as we as we said 
you know, very major underdogs, you know, makes a lot of sense. They were 41 and 42 uh, mm-hmm. to end the season. So, you know, it, it makes sense that, you know, they weren't favored uh, that well. And they, they open up, they lose game one. Uh, they lose four to three. Uh, yeah. They actually scored three in the first inning, but uh, didn't score again. And the, the pitching staff couldn't hold on. Game two of the NLCS, they end up on top. Uh, they win two to one. Uh, Tom Browning, Tom Tom Browning, uh, Rob Dibble, and Randy Myers hold mm-hmm. it down. Get used to uh, Rob Dibble and Randy Myers, especially holding yeah. it down, because because those guys. That's all they did. Yeah, they uh, they were they were big time, and uh, Paul O'Neill, um, as you saw in the Red Hot video, uh, Paul O'Neill, he ended up getting uh, both RBI mm-hmm. uh, for the Reds in that win. Uh, as as I said, two to one win for them. Uh, then in game three, uh, with the help of a Mariano Duncan uh, three run homer, who was their second baseman at the time, uh, as a result of the three run homer uh, and his three for five four RBI day, they end up winning six to three. They're up two one on the Pirates. And then in game four, they win again. They win five to three. Uh, Chris Sabo. Uh, with the with the biggest hit that day, had a two run homer, and uh, also ended up being two for three with three RBI that day. So they're up three to one on the Pirates. They were major underdogs in yeah. in this series, and now they're up three to one. Then game five, they lose uh, in a pretty uneventful three to two loss. Like some like most of the runs the Pirates scored weren't even on hits; they were on like sack flies, flies balls, ground outs. Yeah, some weird, weird runs. Kind of just to kind of just get them tomorrow type of loss. Yeah, just like, yeah, you know. Uh, but a 3-1 lead, mind you, very dangerous lead in sports because yeah. you you lose you lose game five and then um, like you, you send it back to all that pressure. I'm sure everyone knows about it. But then game six, uh, they end up winning two to one. Uh, the Red Staff only allows one hit. Uh, the entire Reds pitching staff only ends up allowing one hit in that yep. game. Uh, Luis Quinones was the hero of that game, just a pinch hitter. Uh, he hit the go-ahead RBI single That's in right. one of the late innings. In um, Tony Walters fashion. Yeah, Tony Walters fashion. And, uh, yeah, the, the Reds win that game, which results in them – uh, going to the World Series, winning the National League pennant, uh, mm-hmm. going to the World Series. Um, some some notable performances. Um, didn't win MVP, but Paul O'Neill was huge. Eight for 17 uh, with a 13-24 OPS. Also a home run and four RBI to go with that. And then uh, the uh, two of the Nasty Boys won uh, co-MVP mm-hmm. in the uh, in the NLCS. Uh, to the Nasty Boys, that those were uh, Rob Dibble and Randy Myers combined. They were they had uh, ten and two thirds inning innings pitched, no runs, two hits, four walks, and seventeen strikeouts. That's seventeen strikeouts in ten and two thirds innings. And might and might I add, that's six base runners in ten and two thirds innings. Yeah, pretty crazy stuff. They were just not letting. 
they were not giving the Pirates one single inch. Uh, and Rob Dibble was particularly per, particularly spectacular. Uh, yeah. He had five innings, uh, no runs, no hits, one walk, and ten strikeouts. One base runner in five innings. And that, that folks, is the NLCS. They went in six games, and now they're going – to the World Series. In a series that they were severe underdogs. Like, they were not supposed to win a game in this series. The 103-win Oakland Athletics with the Bash Bros. They had Harold Baines, who later became a Hall of Famer. We have some opinions on that. But nonetheless, <laughs> really good player. Of course, Ricky Henderson, uh, the Cy Young winner, Bob Welsh. Uh, this team had everything top to bottom. They had pitching. They had, I mean, they had a Hall of Fame three-hitter in Ricky Henderson. They had a Hall of Famer in Harold Baines. They had a Hall of Famer in Dennis Eckersley. They had Cy Young winner Bob Welsh. They had everything and on their Mark side. McGuire, Mark McGuire and yeah. uh, Jose Canseco, Jose maybe Hall of Famers, if not for steroid uh, mm-hmm. use. That's right. So, yeah, I mean, they had – they had uh, yeah, they were fourth in the AL in team OPS. They were third in the AL in runs, first in the AL in team ERA – might I add, by a, by a lot as well. Oh, yeah. They had a 3-1-8 team ERA. And uh, they had three guys, three total guys in the top five for Cy Young voting. And they had six guys in the top 12 for MVP voting. Insane. The Reds were not supposed to beat this team. Insane. This team is destined to win. They were the defending champions. They had made the World Series two years in a row. This is a dynasty in the making. They have to win the series. Mm-hmm. Game one happens, seven to nothing, shutout. A's win, right? Nope, the Reds won. Eric Davis led the way, two for four with three RBI. Riho pitched for the Reds. He went seven shutout innings in game one. And then, yeah. So game two, uh, game two is a closer game. Uh, Game game one, they just pretty much had it from the jump. Uh, Game two is a closer game. Uh, their starter, I believe it was Danny Jackson. He had a, he had a bit of a rough start, but their bullpen was able to come in clutch. Uh, this was a 10 inning game. They, the bullpen went seven and a third of shutout baseball. So that led to, led to, uh, the Reds having, being able to have, uh, this moment from, uh, from, What's his name? Tony Oliver? Oliver? Joe Oliver. Joe what? Oliver. What's Joe Oliver. Joe Oliver. Yep. Catcher. Let me share the screen right here. So game two, you got Dennis Eckersley, who had a .61 ERA that also, year. Might I add, that guy on second you see there, that's Billy Bates. That's Billy uh, Bates. Not, not, a, not a hitter. That's a pinch runner right there. That's, yeah. That guy is on base to score the run. Yeah, but you're not supposed to score off of accuracy. No. But here it is.
So that's game two. That's probably the, most, probably the most dramatic moment of the uh, of the series. Yeah. And, uh, in game game three, uh, not dramatic at all. Uh, they were they were down uh, two to nothing, but they were able to uh, get the lead relatively quickly. Yeah. Uh, they had a seven run third inning, and uh, five of those were scored with two outs. And unfortunately for whoever was pitching, there was an error earlier in the in earlier in the inning. So uh, a lot of unearned runs there. So yeah, five score, five runs were scored. But defense uh, wins championships, game. Chris. What was that? Defense wins championships. Yeah, that's that's correct. You can't rule that out as much as Bill James wants to mm-hmm. rule it out. Um, eight, yeah. So that seven-run third inning—that's really all that they needed. They uh, they win the game eight to three. Um, but uh, particularly who a guy who was particularly good that game. Um, he was able to produce in both the second inning and the uh, and the third inning where all the runs were scored. Um, he was able to really break the game open. Uh, Chris Sabo coming up clutch. Uh, here he is. One of the 20 came back to win it. But nine of 18 since 54. Well hit ball by Sabo carrying to the track to the wall and Cincinnati leads it one to nothing. Sabo cracks one over the fence. That's the fourth Cincinnati hit. Johnny LaRusa, Mike Moore, and themselves trailing in this way. Mike Moore in a position where he had to throw the fastball. He throws it, he finds the fat part of the plate, the fat part of the bat, and the Reds are on top. Or, uh, yeah, they, they were on top one nothing. So yeah, that's what that's what really broke things open for the Reds. That's what kind of made that inning a disaster for the A's. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was there was really no coming back from that for the A's. They were unable to really muster up anything, especially against that bullpen. Then uh, then in Game Four, you know, I, I guess the A's. You know, you can have some hope. You know, you're at home. Uh, you might be able to to dig out of this, but uh. You know, and they they get a run in the first inning against Jose Rihu, but Rihu he does not he does not uh, give up anything else after that one run in the first inning. Yeah. He ends up going eight and a third, allowing just that one run, and also striking out nine. Um, and the Reds were able to uh, get two runs in the eighth inning. Um, they they loaded up the bases really quickly and were able to get a sack fly, and uh, and a ground out to drive those runs in, and uh, you know Rihu he does not finish the game, but uh, in comes why does he need to? Lions. What was that? Why does he need to finish the game? You got these three. Yeah, you got Norm Charlton, you got Rob Dibble, and most importantly, you got uh, Randy Myers, who was the defiant closer for pretty much the whole year. Yeah. 
Shout out to uh, Apple TV. <laughs> And there we are. The, the 1990 Reds. Reds are World Series champions. And not only did they win the World Series, they swept the team that should have beaten them in a landslide. It's not like it was a hard battle, and they, they, you know, they had a couple bounces go their way in a game seven and a win. No, no, no. They blew them out of the water. One thing I should games. add, though, is the A's were screwed from the beginning because they swept the LCS. And we know and this isn't, you know, recorded, but when we had shows in October, I had that stat. And luckily the Nationals were able to kind of to break that streak. But yeah. before the Nationals uh, won the World Series this year, teams to sweep in the, a, in the, uh, in the LCS since they moved the uh, LCS to seven games in 1985, uh, teams to sweep in that series were one in six in the World Series, which and was terrible. The 1990 A's are one of those six. It was, it was one in six or one in sevens. It was terrible, terrible. But then the Nationals uh, were able to break that streak. But even the A's, the 103 win A's were prone to that. Crazy. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah. Billy Hatcher had one of the best performances by anyone in a World Series ever. Nine for 12. He had a 750 batting average, Chris. Insane. That's all I have to say. I, could, I, I mean, I could stop right there and it proves my point, but I'm going to remind you that he had a, a 2050 OPS. His OPS is a year that, didn't, that hasn't even happened yet. Yeah. And he, was, he had two RBI, and he didn't even win World Series MVP. Chris Sabo, he didn't win it either, but he went 9 for 16 with a 16-11 OPS, two home runs, of course, in that third game, five RBI. Uh, the Nasty Boys combined to go eight and two-thirds innings pitched, zero earned runs, six hits, one walk, and seven Ks. But the MVP, the, the leader in B-War for this team, Jose Rijo, 2-0, and 15 and a third innings pitched, one earned run, nine hits, five walks, and 14 strikeouts. In the entire playoffs, we mentioned Randy Myers and Rob Dibble earlier. In the entire playoffs, Myers went eight and two-thirds, Zero earned runs, four hits, three walks, 10 Ks, and four saves. Dibble, nine and two-thirds, zero runs once again, three hits, two walks, and 14 Ks. Yeah, and Rob Dibble was like – Rob Dibble was a guy that threw 98 before most people really threw 98. Uh, I have a few people I want to mention that I feel like didn't necessarily get enough attention uh, yeah. in this little segment. Uh, I'd like to start with Eric Davis. He was in the heart of the lineup essentially for this team. Uh, he had a 480, you know, he had a 260, 347, 486, 833 slash line for the whole year. Very respectable, very good. You also had Hal Morris, who I believe finished third in the rookie of the year voting that year, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, he sure did. Uh, he was excellent uh, for the Reds. 
uh, hitting 340, 381, 498, 880. Really good. Only 107 games, but still. Another guy is uh, Bill Doran. He was acquired midseason, and unfortunately, he didn't get to play much. Only 17 games, he got hurt. But in those 17 games, 373, 448, 559, 1007. Uh, Yeah. Ken Griffey was also on this team. He uh, didn't exactly have his best season, 206, 235, 286, 521. But he was there for the ride, and he was there for clubhouse culture nonetheless. Yeah, this team was really kind of a, like, more of a, I guess, for lack of a better term, a team. Not really – yeah. team made up of a, a bunch of stars and like the point like the point is proved exactly by like Barry Larkin didn't really have a, a an excellent exactly. season he, he still a, probably could have won without it yeah I mean he he did hit 300 he did have 30 stolen bases but mm-hmm. only a, a 753 OPS still you know very good very above above replacement level but not the excellent no Hall of Fame Barry Larkin that you know you know no one no one on the team had above a 900 OPS. Uh, you know, Jose Rui, who was really the only excellent starting pitcher, he he had a 2.70 ERA in 197 innings. That's right. Yeah, it was a lot of you know culmination of guys on offense, culmination of starting pitchers, and of course that excellent bullpen that that you have to mention. Yeah, and that's Chris. Do you have anything else? Uh, I don't really have anything else on the Nasty Boys. Very interesting I'm either. team. I'm glad that you... is the 1990 Reds. This team was one of the most fun that I've gotten to really cover and dive deep into. Uh, I mean, the Nasty Boys are obviously so much fun to watch. I can't imagine they're any fun to face, but nonetheless, I had a pleasure uh, covering these three men uh, and their crazy antics on and off the field. For sure. Um, let's get into... Uh... That's it. Into the last segment of the episode where we Chris, pick. I'll let you go first this time because I went first last time. Um, all right. So, uh, you know, if you we we didn't mention it at the beginning of the show. If you're mm-hmm. still listening, thank you. But uh, we've decided because of the COVID nineteen outbreak and there not being any baseball to talk about because we are an MLB basically show that talks about current events. Uh, we're we're going to become more we're going to become more history based. We're going to talk about mm-hmm. uh, different players, different teams specifically. We're I've picked out thirty players. Uh, Daniel has picked out thirty teams, particular uh, years and teams like the nineteen ninety Reds. He picked uh, a team for every major league ball club. Um, mm-hmm. I kind of just went random with players mostly uh mostly hall of fame caliber players and uh we we've assigned numbers to each of them and we pick a number between one and 30 uh every episode now and uh that will be our player and that will be our team so that leads me into picking my number which will be number 17 number 17 we're going to do the world series champion 2005 chicago white Sox. Nice. That's nice. right. We got Paul Canerco. Your curse. We got, yeah, 88-year curse. We got, uh, I'm blanking on names right now, Scott Pudsednik. Jermaine Dye. Jermaine oh, Dye. That's right. I'm excited to talk about this team. All right, I guess it's my turn then, isn't it? Yes. I'm going to go with number three. 
Number three. Ooh, this is gonna be a this is gonna be an interesting one. I'm excited. Uh, a man with three thousand hits and kind of overlooked by the baseball world. Is it Paul Molitor. It is Paul Molitor. Oh, what a guess! And I'm I'm excited for this one for one real particular reason because I I talked I talked to you about I know exactly what you're talking about right now about a comparison. <laughs> And uh, yeah, I'm excited to get into Paul Molitor and, and his oh boy, and particularly a very good postseason performer as well, which is one of the reasons I picked him. That's right. But yeah. So next episode, uh, we're going to be talking about. So yeah, thank you guys uh, for listening. Uh, as of this date, we are not on Apple Podcasts, but I hope that you are possibly listening on Apple Podcasts and or Spotify. Uh, you can. You can subscribe to our YouTube channel. Um, uh, the YouTube channel is called STBNL with Chris Gianta and Daniel Curran. Yeah. Uh, my Twitter is at Chris underscore Gianta. Daniel's Twitter is at Daniel underscore Curran. We thank you for listening to our very special All Reds edition. That's right. Uh, Joe Morgan and 1990 Reds episode. And we look forward to talking you talking to you next week when we talk about uh we talk about paul molitor and the 2005 chicago white white sox That's right. next week